Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time. We're pretty lucky today. We're going to have an amazing guest, Rob Slaughter, joining us today to talk about first his background uh, as a military officer and what he's done in the Department of Defense with uh, uh, Space Camp Platform 1 and all the good stuff he was able to get done, uh, but also his new uh, company called the Defense Unicorn. So uh, it's going to be a fun episode. If you have questions for Rob, we already have a lot of questions coming from social media. So if you want to start now asking your question, you can do that by uh, going into the comment section below and put uh, your question with a Q so we know it's a question. Also, if you want to share you here uh, today and you want to be highlighted on the screen, do that uh, just by putting your name and maybe the company uh, you're with. So we can do that uh, also in the comment section below. wanted to remind everybody that uh, we finally launched uh, Learn With Nick. And uh, if you want to check it out, Go on learnwithnick.com. We have a 10-day uh, free trial for you to check it out. We have a lot of content now. You're going to see a lot of uh, uh, different topics covered from culture things like fail fast, learn fast, don't fail, try for some reason, all the way to how to build a platform team, uh, all the way to technical subjects like Kubernetes, Service Mesh, GitOps. We just released a video on the Cloud Native Access Point, uh, so you can take a look at that and uh, see a little bit about uh, zero trust and how we implemented zero trust in uh, platform one across classification levels and uh, how we do that uh, device enforcement, uh, enforcement of user identity, both on the people side and the system side. It's a lot of great uh, discussions in there as well. We also do live Q&A sessions every two weeks with the community. So we have uh, uh, quite a lot of members now coming from different companies, uh, from telcos to banks to, uh, of course, the DoD, but also other nations as well. We have about uh, six nations now on the platform uh, from Japan to uh, to NATO partners to uh, 5i. So check it out. Love to get your feedback on what's missing. We're going to have guests, too, on the platform with master classes type uh, uh, engagements. Uh, the next one will be on architecture, and then we're going to do one on the uh, uh, cloud um uh, cybersecurity implementation of the, the CNAP with the uh, uh, zero trust engagement, but also we're going to cover the continuous accreditation uh, capabilities of the CATOs. And then we're going to do one on the uh, agile acquisition. We've got a pretty amazing guest to come and do that. Uh, former uh, two-star general um, that's going to come and, and kind of cover the, the topic for us on the contracting slash acquisition side. We already have a video on agile acquisition, but it's only a you know, 20-minute segment, uh, this is going to be a real deep dive, right, about about four hours of, uh, of content, so it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, check it out, you know, go subscribe, of course, if you're a civilian military, and that counts also for veterans, right? So um, if you're a, vet a veteran, of course, you get uh, the 50% off, just uh, uh, type uh, the coupon code uh, military, and then, of course, for early adopters, we're almost at the cap, though, so I don't know how many seats are left, but... Uh, Less Beats China uh, get, gets you 20% off. So uh, check that out. Uh, of course, if you're a company, you get uh, volume discounts. And we have uh, many companies buying two, three, four hundred seats uh, a pop. So, uh, all right. So now that we uh, told you a little bit about what we've been uh, working on, and I hope you like the content and all the work we've been doing, um, of course, don't forget to register uh, to the mailing list so you can get notifications about the next episode. We're not going to have an episode next week. Uh, because I'm traveling, but uh, you'll be able to see the next guest after in two weeks, uh, Joe Saunders, the, the founder of uh, Runsafe, 
a great, great, amazing guy. Is one of the nicest person I've met in cybersecurity all around. Just a you know a great uh, human being, but also a, a very uh, deep expert in cybersecurity. So um, it's going to be a fun episode in two weeks to talk about RunSafe and what they've been doing when it comes to uh, kind of different ways of thinking about um, hardening operating systems and and uh, different things. So. Um, uh, stay tuned in two weeks uh, next uh, not next Tuesday, but in, in two weeks at 1 p.m. All right. So now we have an amazing guest. I told you about the doctor. Doctor, don't forget the doctor. This is so important. You know, I, I care about degrees. So he has a Ph.D., you know, so he's a fancy. Unlike me, you know, I don't have any degree. Uh, I don't. I have a high school diploma. I don't know if that counts. Does that get me something in front of my name? I don't know. You tell me. But uh, he's a doctor. So Dr. Rob slaughter uh, of course he's a vet uh, but he's also uh, the CEO of defense unicorns he uh, he has done so many things uh, particularly for the department he's, he's been uh, kind of my go-to guy to get things done when I was uh, in the department of the Air Force um, of course he co-founded uh, both uh, uh, platform one and uh, uh, space camp but he was also the DevOps lead of the national uh, space Defense uh, Center. Uh, of course, uh, what started as uh, his love for physics grew into uh, the love of uh, software and how software interacts with people. He actually read books, unlike me, so he can tell you a lot about the right kind of books to uh, to educate yourself on becoming a better leader and understanding a little bit uh, better the the culture aspect of things. When I was a little bit more focused on the on the tech geeky stuff, you know. So that's been a, a pretty good uh, balance between me and him. Uh, of course, uh, he was able to get a lot, lot of things done until he left uh, the Air Force and started Defense Unicorn, which is uh, you know, one of the fastest growing company that I've got the chance to see. And uh, you know, a company that's been able to uh, focus on dual use and, and commercial um, slash federal engagements from day one in one year growing to, uh, I believe, uh, 60 plus people, pretty amazing growth. Uh, I think I was looking on LinkedIn. You can see the numbers, but 160% uh, over year growth, uh, pretty amazing stuff. And really, uh, not only uh, growing fast, and it's pretty easy to grow if you do it wrong, but also hiring the some of the top talent I've seen and met in the department. So he's been stealing, unfortunately, for the other companies, kind of the best uh, people I've met also at my during my time in the in the Air Force and Space Force and DoD. So um, let's bring Rob and uh, say hi to Rob. Hey, what's up, Nick? How are you? How are you doing? We're, good. We're, good. we're very happy to have you. You know, you've done a lot. Of course, people, I want to follow you. You're also on, uh, on LinkedIn like me. You're trying to keep up with me, but you're so far behind. It's a little bit ridiculous, but, uh, you know, you're getting there, right? I think <laughs> 2 million views you were telling me you're doing pretty far away from my six million views but you know one day who knows maybe if you don't uh, talk about china too much you're gonna <laughs> be able to, uh, to get uh, faster than me so you're not getting throttled like the rest of us so that's always good so yeah, helps, uh, you know, we always start with the same question right uh tell us a little bit about yourself you know uh, m most of the people know you because we have kind of the same uh followers but uh love to uh, to get it from your own mouth before i i butcher it yeah, yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, for, for me, it's, uh, you know, grew up uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, live there now with my kids. 
um, you know, uh, sort of key like moments in my life. Uh, when I was in high school, you know, I was high school age when 9-11 happened. Uh, didn't really have any intentions of joining the military. Uh, but but after that event, it kind of uh, really sparked my passion for, for sort of understanding uh, what it means to, to serve. My, my grandfather served in the Air Force. Uh, he was stationed over at Luke Air Force Base, which is uh, where, you know, why my, my, uh, my dad ended up living in Phoenix. Um, and so when I looked through college options, uh, you know, wanted to, you know, was looking across different service academies, um, ended up doing ROTC because it turns out I wasn't very good at school. Uh, and, and really, you know, as the description uh, that Nick sort of mentioned, really fell in love with physics. Um, read a book by Stephen Hawking, you know, the universe in a nutshell, just really became fascinated by uh, really how to explain things well from a physics and math perspective. Um, and so did ROTC through a space physics program at, at Embry-Riddle and then did sort of a series of assignments, um, all of which uh, became very software related. Uh, so in a physics uh, sort of field, uh, you, you kind of, it doesn't really matter what you do, whether it's uh, theoretical or um, applied or anything like that, it, it almost always comes down to, you know, writing uh, crummy software. Um, and so uh, coming into the Department of Defense, there's not a ton of people with software backgrounds. So even though I felt like I didn't have a software background relative to a lot of other people, turns out you kind of do. Um, and so through really just a series of uh, different assignments, just uh, found myself continuing to invest more and more in, in software until, you know, both outside of the military and then internally until I it just kind of sort of fell in love with it um, because saw it as, you know, not only the way our, our lives currently exist, but, but really how um, wars in the future are going to be fought. They're going to be, you know, heavily software focused, heavily software intensive, um, you know, and, and if we're going to have a chance, then we're going to have to be one of the best organizations on the planet in, you know, writing and deploying software. And so uh, towards the end of my career, started a couple software factories. Uh, of course, uh, Nick showed up on scene. Uh, we didn't actually uh, know each other. Uh, actually, uh, one of my colleagues, Jeff McCoy, actually reached out to him on LinkedIn um, when he was a master sergeant. And at the time, me and two master sergeants and another captain who's now at Google were, you know, starting our own organic software team. We sort of found each other um, when we were just trying to solve our own problems, just trying to write software to solve the problems that we had really experienced on the operational side of the Air Force. Um, when Nick was around interviewing a bunch of teams, um, I'm sure like everybody else, we thought he was kind of crazy. Uh, and then you meet him, you find out and you are confirmed that he actually is kind of crazy. Uh, but then, but then, you know, he, he did have a vision. Um, and it was really that vision, that desire to, to make the mission better, uh, which is sort of why we, you know, kind of jumped all in. Yeah, that's how we met. Right. And uh, you are a major, of course, I believe, right at the time. Um, yeah. So obviously no one cared about ranks. Uh, at least I didn't. Uh, I know Lauren also the Air Force CAO does not care about ranks and that's how we got stuff done. Right. And you mentioned uh, Jeff being an E7 and Matt Mayuson being E7s too, uh, until we turned them into uh, GS-15s overnight, which was fun. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, kind of the momentum, right, of the, the DevSecOps work and, uh, of course, the factories. And, uh, you know, what's interesting is the, the department has been pushing for these uh, kind of fancy, you know, very expensive uh, weapon, you know, with uh, F-35s and, and others, uh, B-21 and, and so on. 
Uh, and yet, you you know, we all agree, I think, that uh, kind of the, the software capabilities and the ability to uh, react to events and be able to move at a pace of relevance is so important. Uh, but what you've seen also is, um, you know, bringing DevSecOps to uh, the largest organization in the world is obviously uh, not the easiest thing we can do. So what have you seen are the, the biggest issues trying to do that? Uh, I think it's a combination of just people believing it can be done, um, followed by like people with the actual skill sets who have the ability to execute. And so like the, right. the, the first part is, is there's so few people who actually believe that things can get better. They, they don't even like self-identify that, that they're in a position to make things better. They understand that the way they're doing it sucks but they, they don't actually know how to get better. And they, they don't even know, like, they don't even believe that their systems can get better. Um, the number of teams that we talk to that, that think they're special, they think that, you know, yes, but blah, 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 this system. Yes, but blah, 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 this system um, is, is super shocking. And so like, uh, I think the, the biggest organizational challenge is just, you know, not only acknowledging that there's a problem, because I, I think the DOD is and, you know, and Congress is actually doing a great job now of saying like, hey, there's an issue with software. Um, but but saying that like, hey, the timelines that one would reasonably expect to improve can actually move a lot faster. And, you know, so sometimes we talk to different program offices, they talk about a 10 year transition plan to containers. And it's like, why does it take 10 years to do anything? Um, but but it's because they don't actually believe that they can move um, any faster than that. And, and in some cases, that might be a little bit more realistic if there's, you know, hardware refreshes. But a lot of cases, when you sort of dive into things, you realize like, like, no, this isn't a limitation because of hardware. This is a limitation because they don't actually believe they can go faster. And this is followed by from a second somebody believes they can do it. Do you actually have the team in place that can execute? Um, and I think the the Department of Defense and the D Defense Industrial Base has just done such a terrible job of staffing the right software expertise to satisfy the mission. And so, you know, there's something on the order of 100,000 DOD software engineers. You know, if, if as a single organization, we'd be the, the largest software organization on the planet. We should be a software leader, yet, yet we're not. And we're not because of a variety of reasons. Um, one of those just being, you know, our inability to retain and recruit great engineers. In fact, what, why did you feel like you were um, going to be able to do better on the outside that, than staying on the inside? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's it's control uh, HR, control the culture. You know, for, for me personally, the, the number one decision why I, I got out was I, I wasn't able to be stationed with my kids. Um, you know, I, you know, my two kids uh, going to live in Phoenix. I wasn't able to, you know, really no options for my specialty code to live in the Phoenix area. And, you know, currently, you know, at the time worked at a unit that was not supportive of remote work. And so to, to go back to some of the culture and HR issues, they wanted me to work remote in the local area of the place I was stationed versus work remote, you know, being next to my kids. And, and to me, that was, uh, you know, kind of the, an easy decision. So, so first and foremost, it was, you know, a, a family and personal choice why to, why to leave the military. Um, but, but after I left, you know, it's kind of like, how, how do we 
you know, improve as a, as a country. And one of the things I saw was all of this software talent would, would come into the DOD, really, really excel. They would be these great individuals. And then they would, they would run off and go work for, you know, Google or, or Amazon or, you know, insert, you know, Silicon Valley like um, startup here. And in a lot of cases, or at least in some cases, they would still work on DOD use cases, but that's probably more of the exception than the rule. It was probably 80 plus percent of them just left and then never really touched the DOD again. Um, and so first and foremost, I wanted to have more control over that, that, that talent pipeline. You know, how do you actually establish a culture that, that feels just as nice as you were at, you know, any of the nicest startup in Silicon Valley, but do it while focused on the mission. And, you know, to me, the, the mission aspect of what the DOD has is a, it is an amazing recruitment tool. Um, you know, a lot of folks will, will sort of, I think, acknowledge this, like the DOD has a monopoly on mission, like the people who are naturally drawn to national defense, the people who are patriotic, like nobody can compete with the DOD and coolness. You know, talk to a lot of friends at a lot of different places. They're, you know, automating, you know, algorithms around scooters or checklists or, you know, checkout lines on, online. They're doing a lot of, you know, interesting things from a software perspective, yet their impact to the world is is super small to the impact that you get to make on the DOD. And so it's like, how do you use that mission drive incentive and mission focus to recruit people and then retain people so that as engineers sort of go through the internal pipeline, learning from a variety of prime contractors or small businesses, once they get the expertise to really, really make a difference, you know, to still keep them focused on DOD problems versus uh, go to some other company where they're going to be uh, less focused on national security objectives. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, what's interesting is um, when I left the department too, right, I felt like, uh, um, you know, any other mission was pretty boring, you know, and, uh, you know, I think the pretty much the only thing that still gets me excited is, is kind of the space mission. So that's probably the closest you get, you know, to kind of a DOD like thing. But even that, right, you, and, you know, if you're doing some commercial uh, space engagement, it's just not the same. And so I completely agree with the monopoly on the mission side. And it's kind of tough, right, because there's just nothing, nothing like it. So it's like you, you don't know what else to do. <laughs> you you feel like you're uh, you're wasting your time, and that's pretty interesting, right? It's from someone coming from uh, 22 years on the commercial side, I, I would usually pretty quickly get excited about new technologies and get things done, build a company, build a product, sell it, move on to the next one. But I can tell you, since then, uh, I just feel like uh, you know I don't have the uh, the excitement, you know, to uh, to even get started because you know to be an entrepreneur, as you know. You don't have the uh, the excitement and uh, the passion. I think it's pretty impossible to succeed. You know, people kind of uh, underestimate what it takes to to become an entrepreneur. You know, it's not for everybody, uh, but it's also a lot of work, and uh, you don't count hours. So, um, if you're not passionate, it's going to be pretty difficult to succeed on the long run. So, I think it's important. You know, when you you, know, you get to touch the mission, and so you know, with you creating obviously uh, defense unicorns and making it kind of dual sided, you know, kind of commercial. Uh, slash uh, government with a lot of stuff in, in DOD. Obviously, you get to uh, to still work on pretty exciting mission, and that's uh, probably why it's so rewarding, I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the commercial companies that we work with are, are still very mission-focused in their own way. So it's you know focused either on healthcare or, or even other commercial companies that are focused on you know other defense or aerospace-type mission use cases. And so, you know, we've, uh, you know, be because it's how we recruit people, 
um, we make sure that, you know, really any organization that we work with has at the end of the day, sort of that same sort of mission drive and mission focus. Yeah. And that's that that kind of gives you the balance you need to uh, to get where you want to be without also becoming kind of one of those, uh, you know, DOD only startups funded through Sibyls that never makes it outside of it. And I think it's a pretty bad uh, VCP for success. I yeah, I like it. I, I was actually surprised at how advanced uh, the DOD had become in just a short period of time. I think there's um, really no shortage of you know, cloud native services work on, on the outside, on the commercial side. And, you know, if, if we had wanted to, like, if I had wanted to get out and do a services, you know, startup really, really just focused on cloud native stuff, like I, you know, probably would be sort of similar outcomes in terms of growth and stuff, but from a life satisfaction standpoint and from a recruiting standpoint, you know, as you mentioned, it's just never going to be the same without the, you know, the focus on, you know, national security. Yeah, and we'll talk about the people stuff because you know let's dig into into that a little bit, right? Because you managed to to go after some of the the best talent that I've met in the department. It's a little bit a, a little bit frustrating, I gotta say, because you're kind of having this monopoly now of uh, of the best talent, and I don't know how others are gonna get to compete with you guys. At some point, you're gonna become the next, uh, you know, the next Apple. You know, where you have uh, a Google. You know, you have everybody kind of the monopoly of um, of the best uh, DevSecOps talent in, in DoD. That's uh, that's interesting, you know, but uh, how did you get to uh, to get, you know, that momentum going and, and what could DoD do, right, to kind of fix some of the human, you know, resource struggles that you've seen and, and some of the reasons as to why you left as well? Yeah, I, I uh, thanks for the kind words. Like, uh, obviously we're super small and so I, I appreciate the compliments, but, uh, you know, I think... Uh, you know, we most of the people we hired do come out of uh, FedCiv or Gov, or they've been working on you know air gap software delivery uh, sort of programs. Um, and I think the you know the big, biggest issue on HR is just a lack of flexibility. Um, there's so many people across the Department of Defense they 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 try to just like stamp a template and say like here's our template of how you should behave, and then they want everybody to conform to that template. And the reality is all of your innovators, all of your disruptors are the anti a template. And, and the best way to enable them is to, to not give them a template, to, to sort of, you know, hear, hear their vision, hear their, their, you know, what they're thinking about, give them, you know, mission focused feedback, and then let them do what they're, what they're best at. Um, things like, you know, monitoring hours or where you're performing work, or, you know, here's your quote training requirements for the year. And, you know, I think, you know, I like to think that things are getting better, but at the same time, there's consistently issues around HR. You know, I think the first one is like remote work. Um, you know, good luck competing with software talent if you don't default to remote work. There's certain people that still like to be in person, but I think that's um, more of the exception than, than what, you, what you see. And, and certainly from a recruiting standpoint, if you lead into it with location, um, you know, you're really, really going to sell yourself short. Now that runs into a lot of issues when, when you're dealing with, you know, things like skiff space and classified work. And, and so I think there needs to be investments around, you know, how do you have hubs within any major city that people can hot desk around? So that way you can still have software talent that's, you know, focused on, you know, air gap and classified problems. 
Um, but, you know, and, and, you know, there are probably some things like that that exist, but how do you do that actually at scale um, to where really any, any company could, you know, pay a per monthly seat and, and, you know, really, really get to the bottom of how do you basically just hire people to where they can work remotely, but then still go into the office when they have to. Um, a lot of people point to things like pay, but from my experience, pay is um, not really the biggest driver especially for the younger generation, it's really about, you know, satisfaction and overall job happiness. Um, do they like the things that they're working on? Um, do they feel enabled? Are they passionate about it? If, if they don't, you know, can't go to work that day because they're sick, are they, you know, or their, their kids sick, do, do they just get to miss work and nobody's going to give them any problems? You know, are you not monitoring the clock looking for nine to five, but are you monitoring outcomes? Um, and so it's really just a mentality shift around what HR is used to, because HR is normally used to go inside the building, watch everybody day to day. Here's your annual performance report. You know, it, it, you know, today's sort of work environment is really based on continuous feedback, not an annual feedback system. Like, yeah, pay has to be competitive, but, you know, pay is probably only the third or fourth driver for why people leave or why people don't accept I'd say that the number one driver is just honestly speed to hire. Um, if it takes you a year to hire somebody after they verbally have given you a yes, odds are the best people have moved on. And so if you can't hire quickly, then good luck. And then the second one being, you know, the remote uh, work environment. And a year is pretty terrible. What would you argue is, is the right goal to hire? I think 30 days is is a reasonable uh, goal i think people are understanding that it's the government but i think you know by two or three months you're starting to you know get to the point of where they're probably going to look somewhere else um but if you can get it within 30 days i think most people are going to uh, take those offers and the number of times that i've met amazing amazing people that that were trying to work with the federal government that ultimately said no um, mainly because they couldn't actually get the offer in hand yeah. And and so you mentioned, uh, you know, quite a few problems there in terms of flexibility. I also see people abusing of uh, kind of these, uh, you know, benefits, right? Um, in France, you know, I, I remember people uh, having a pimple on their hand and taking two weeks off because they couldn't type on the keyboard on the back of their hands, you know, nothing stopping them to work. But because they got free healthcare, there was a massive abuse, right? So, so what I've seen in France, which is, you know, obviously uh, very socialist, uh, you see a pretty massive uh, abuse and, and kind of dependency of, of you know, uh, effectively supporting people through, you know, public means. And uh, quite honestly, the abuse and the fraud is is rampant. And, you know, it, it's kind of interesting when here, you know, you, you, you know, healthcare, obviously, is very expensive. And I guess if, if people felt the pain of not having it, they would probably not uh, take a chance to to destroy it by uh, committing fraud and, and, you know, abusing of the system. But unfortunately, that's what you see. You know, people get used to stuff, right? They, they start, I've started to see, you know, people remote and not working. I forgot how they call it. There's this whole wave of, of people that say quit, you know, slow. I forgot how they call it, where they slowly do less work and until they get caught and get fired because they're not working. I forgot how that's called. There's a whole article in the New York I Times about it. It's quite quiet. Quitting. Here we go. Yeah. You know, so you see people doing that, right? And and that's obviously exactly what uh, 
you know, corporations need to start, start saying, well, you know, if you're going to abuse of our kindness, we're going to we're going to also stop uh, giving it to you. So how do you balance it? You said, you know, so you already had a massive growth. It's pretty difficult, right, to grow so fast and still, you know, you need outcomes. You say, well, OK, we need to track outcomes. Well, th- what does that mean for you guys? Right. What do you do? to make sure you're not just paying a bunch of people sitting. And I know you're very flexible with IRLs and, you know, people getting sick and kids sick and that's all good, right? To a point, right? People cannot start abusing of it too much so you don't have outcomes. So how do you do it? How do you keep track of of work? Um, yeah, so I, I actually, uh, you know, I actually support quiet quitting um, because to me <laughs> that, that that is, uh, to me, demonstration that the company doesn't know what's going on. And I think it gets misinterpreted of what people mean by that. Um, given it's not like something that I would, I, I guess, um, personally would would necessarily prescribe to, I just change jobs. But but to me, right. it, it shows an issue with what the business is measuring. Um, because if the business is actually measuring outcomes, to me, people don't quiet quit. To me, people mm. quiet quit when they're fully capable of doing their job. And instead of being able to just do their job well, they're getting micromanaged over a bunch of metrics that don't matter. And so if you measure what matters, to me, that's the entire concept of, you know, quiet quitting just evaporates. Um, because, like I said, I think what, what happens is, is people will establish all these business metrics that they, you know, have gathered over the course of, you know, uh, you know months or years. And then the metrics themselves become the business because it, you know, they see it as a leading indicator, but over the course of time, what, what transitions from a leading indicator, hey, what's going on here? Should we look into this? Has turned into the actual goal itself. And now people are just only responding to the quote leading indicator and no longer driving outcomes. You know, to give you, a, you know, sort of an obvious one, how many hours did you work this week? You know, why? Because we're trying to measure productivity and you're productive if you're working 40 hours a week. You know, as, as a business owner, should you care how many hours people are working? No, you should be looking at what are they producing? And some people are able to produce at a rate that's significantly higher than others. What you find is that the people who are best at their job naturally do more work. And if you focus too much on the metric, what ends up happening is you actually discourage work. And so people stop working when they would have otherwise kind of wanted to work more or other people are just showing up counting the clock when, when really they should just be focused on doing their job. And so, like, to, to me, you know, quiet quitting's uh, a symptom of, you know, lack of mission-focused organizations followed by people tracking metrics that don't matter. So you, you said, you know, obviously um, people do that, right? And uh, uh, you, would, you would have uh, moved on, right, instead of doing that yourself. I think I, I would never do that. I, I find it to be, a, you know, a, a toxic mentality i mean if you don't like your job just move on why why do you think people don't just move on i mean i know it's convenient and, and it's you know complacency and what, whatever else but I, I find it to be a pretty risky move right because now you're, you're setting the wrong i mean I, I get that i understand what you're saying in terms of okay well you you're giving the the company what they were measuring so it's the company's fault to some degree but you also deep down right you know you're abusing and cheating the system and uh you know how do you wake up and look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah, I don't know. It's definitely not something that I would probably personally follow. But to me, it's up to the business to identify that and to, you know, remove those people if they if they actually aren't performing. If they are performing and they're not trying, then like to me, it's really a culture issue of how do you actually increase the productivity? 
And so to me, I put it on the business to find better ways to motivate people uh, more so than on the individual to just say like, hey, I'm going to wake up every day and I'm going to be inspired every day and I'm just going to you know, come come to work that way just because even if my my employer is actually instructionally telling me to do the opposite. And so like to me, I don't think people reach that conclusion themselves unless, you know, held down because the business is, you know, telling them to 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 do it a certain way. Like I said, great example is 40 hour work week. Um, right. You know, plenty of people would work more hours if you stop tracking it. So how do you end up measuring outcomes in, in your company? Uh, that's a great, great question. Um, and so we, we, like a lot of people, have a series of leading indicators. But ultimately, what matters to us is mission applications and production. And so we literally track company-wide um, all of our mission partners, all of our commercial partners, and what what is the number of mission applications that we are supporting in production? That is sort of our, our North star of uh, sort of guidance. And then everything else is a leading indicator of that. You know, how many, you know, new contracts do we have? How, how much product investment, you know, how many, you know, PRs do we have on different products? Everything else is basically marching us towards um, more applications in, in production. And then the tail end of it is the, the, the more benefit you're providing from a mission perspective, is that driving more interest across the community? Because it's it's more obviously than just the number. It's that you're actually making an impact um, at really the fastest rate, and you know, kind of uh, what is something that's you know federally and government or commercially affordable. How, how do you find the bad apples, right? Because I, I guess it could compensate, and and you you could still have a you know twenty percent doing eighty percent of the work. We've we've seen at Platform One, for example, where the growth was uh, pretty uncontrolled. And, and then, you know, I would argue a lot of the people were, should not be there. Yep. Um, it's, it, you know, in my opinion, it's, it's, uh, it's easier for us because we're very small. Um, so right. we do uh, an asynchronous daily standup that tracks what everybody's working on. Um, so you can have... What does that mean, asynchronous? Any asynchronous uh, so so we're, uh, we use a, a tool called Status Hero, which is basically just, you just, Every person in the company, um, or at least the people who remember to, uh, which has a decently high participation rate, um, basically just marks what they did yesterday and what they did, what they're doing today. And they just mm. do that over time. So that way, you know, you can actually scroll through the entire company and, and say like, hey, this person's been working on this thing for, you know, two or three weeks. seems like the type of thing that only should have taken a day or two. Hey, what's going mm. on here? Maybe it's more complicated than, than we thought or realized. Or, hey, this customer's having some issues. Like, who do we have, you know, working on it? Okay, oh, we have this person. Have they been working on it? No, they haven't been. Somebody else assigned them to do something else. So it's not even their problem. It's that, you know, we gave we gave that person two jobs. So, so of course, they're struggling with one. Um, and so it's just something lightweight. Well, you said not everyone has to do it, you said? It's not everybody does. Like, we don't, <laughs> we don't make anything mandatory. It, everything yeah. is uh, participation, but we average about 75 to 80% daily participation. So, um, you but, know, we, but we do you have some that never do it? Sorry, what? Did you have some that never do it? No, nobody, uh, other than Brian Finster. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, but, uh, even Brian, even Brian does it, uh, you know, everybody once in, the in a while. Yeah, every once in a while. <laughs> okay. All right. So, we talked about uh, HR struggle. You also mentioned, you know, uh, tangible value and, and, and so, you know, delivery of, of that value to the world fighter. 
how do you define and you talk about you know okay we need to build better products so how do you define it what, what's the definition of a better product yeah so great question so when i look at the the problems across the ecosystem you know i, I see culture and hr is like the foundational leg um you know the the sort of two other areas that that i hope we talk to is is really you know training how do you actually upskill the workforce that doesn't necessarily have this the, the tools to do this, which, you know, of course, Nick, uh, obviously you do a lot of training stuff and promote, um, you know, all the courses that you're starting to offer, you know, the on the ticker there is also, um, you know, the, you know, previously was our Linux foundation course that, that we offer. So I do think that there is a certain amount of upskilling. Um, but the reality is, is that the mission need demands that we move faster than we're actually going to be able to, um, you know, upskill everybody. You know, like I said, there's 100,000 software engineers. And oh, by the way, for every two you train, one of them is going to potentially leave. And, and so you have this retention issue. And so at the end of the day, you literally just have to make things easier. Um, the entire, entire cloud native community was really predicated on, you know, experts managing SaaS systems. And it was optimization of infrastructure. And so you have these amazing, brilliant, you know, SREs, and, and other infrastructure engineers who are trying to optimize their cloud resources to provide, you know, 100% uptime as, as, you know, as much as possible um, to make sure latency is as small as possible, make sure things are available when somebody clicks a button um, and, and make sure that those costs go way down. And so out of that came things like Kubernetes. Um, and, you know, Nick, you're the, the person who pushed Kubernetes across the DoD. And I think you know, that's the right call because that's where the entire software community is going. But the reality is, is Kubernetes as a technology is, is probably the least compatible thing with how the Department of Defense and federal government work in general. Uh, there's probably like a couple notable exceptions. So like, uh, you know, CMS, you know, Center for Medicaid and Medicare is probably a good exception because of how many people they have on, you know, AWS um, and from an infrastructure perspective, but a lot of the DoD is really these small, isolated private networks. They're not worried about optimizing cloud res resources. They're, they're worried about just getting software out to the operational customers. And in a lot of cases, they actually want dedicated infrastructure. They'll actually say like, when that button goes, I want that infrastructure there. I just want it dedicated and I'll pay for that resource for an infinite amount of time. I just want to make sure that when I press the button, something goes. And so there's a a mismatch of where the entire software development community and cloud native ecosystem went and the realities within the Department of Defense. And, and the, probably the biggest takeaway was that it was, you know, Kubernetes and all these technologies were made by experts for experts. And, and they were made, like I said, for a lot of these SaaS systems where you have centralized management of control of a massive amount of users adopting it. You know, the Department of Defense has a very different problem. The Department of Defense has, uh, you know, lower level IT admins working on decentralized systems. There's a lot of networks with 20, 50, 100 people. There's a lot of people who don't know what Kubernetes is. And those people have to find a way to take the same technologies, the same tools that somebody at, at Google has either developed or using or both and then apply them to their local and oh, by the way, disconnected system. Because you know even the word quote cloud native assumes connectivity and the majority of the actual mission systems are disconnected. And so you have this compounding problem of you know, 
could, like could not find, you know, if, if we tried to make something harder to adopt for the Department of Defense, um, it would be difficult because of how incompatible the way the DOD works is with the cloud native ecosystem. Um, and so how do you fix that? You know, step one, you've got to make it easier. You, you, you have to understand that the personas involved are not going to have the same type of expertise you're going to see on the commercial side, because a lot of the people that you're dealing with, they have to get security clearances and, and they're going to have to show up in, in person to SCIFs. Oh, by the way, nobody likes going to a SCIF. You know, I've never met somebody who's like, I really like, you know, going through three doors and badge access and gate guards and all that other stuff. Like, that's what I, you know, I live for that. There's, there's a very rare no person. Phone. That. No phones, no, you know, take your watch off. Like nobody's doing that. And so there's a, not only is there a talent vacuum across the entire DOD, but it actually gets worse the higher you go. And, and to my, my opinion, the commercial world doesn't fully grasp, one, how difficult it is for AirGap, and two, the persona involved with AirGap software delivery. And, and nobody has invested, in my opinion, you know, until recently, very, very few people have invested on just making AirGap software delivery easier because that's actually what the department needs. Yeah. And and so I guess when you when you look at the uh, enabling that uh, that delivery of, of value, right? You talked about kind of the uh, the DevSecOps principles and you know the, the pipelines and, and automation, right? And removing bottlenecks and and things like that on the accreditation side, the cyber side. Uh, but then you said, hey, we want to make it easier. I guess that's where you guys created uh, Zolf, right? The uh, uh, gap uh, delivery capability, right? Yep. And, you know, so I, I posted a link there, um, zarf.dev. Um, it originally started as a Naval Postgraduate School research paper um, that was done by a Lieutenant Bridger Smith that looked at sort of the realities of the software ecosystem across the Navy. And, and in the Navy, and, and honestly, the Air Force and the Army isn't, isn't too different. It's that uh, in your deployed environments, um, it's mostly uh, active duty you know, soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, guardians, um, those are the people that are actually managing these systems when when it actually comes time to, to fight. And and the reality is, it's like, good luck finding an active duty military person in a deployed location that's going to be managing Kubernetes. And so the, the specific use case was, is how do you simplify continuous delivery in an air gap environment so that way Kubernetes is made easy? And so, we, you know, we came up with... Uh, you know, sort of MVP around Zarf probably about a year ago, uh, marching towards our 1.0 release. You know, feel free to sort of check it out. It's, it's free. It's open source. Uh, we're a free and open source uh, company. So we'll always, uh, it'll always be free and open source. It's Apache 2 license as well. Um, you know, we're passionate about solving this problem and we hope that that people find it uh, useful. And, and you gave it, so why did you decide to make this? I mean, most obviously, most uh, Prime would have, uh, kept this code to close source and tried to license it to make a lot of money. So why did you decide to, uh, to make all this open source? Um, I, I don't think it like uh, it, we just believe in open source. I mean, at, you know, sort of period and dot, like we're not after slowing anyone down. We, we see it as a, as a community. Um, this will be one of several products that we make. We hope others do the same thing. Um, you know, we, you know, it's not, it's not an us versus them company to company engagement. It's us versus them you know, freedom and national security. And so to, to us, it really just came down to, uh, are we helping more people by making it free and open source? And without a doubt, the answer is yes. And so, um, you know, it is kind of part of our core values as a company. Um, and so very, very passionate about 
you know, it being in the open first line of code were on GitHub. And so if you actually go to, um, I can actually get you the. Yeah, we have the link on the, the, the footnote, the, the cool. banner here of the GitHub. Yeah, so, so check it out. Um, we also, um, we haven't announced it yet, but we're going to have training, um, you know, available for it. You know, I might go grab the link in case people are um, interested in, um, you know, getting trained on the tool. That's probably one of the, one of the things that we've identified as, as an issue is that the tool works, but there's probably, you know, a, a day or two of sort of required training, but then a lot of people across the ecosystem don't fully grasp what makes AirGap challenging. And so we, right. we tried to, um, you know, we're making a training course to just help people with that problem. And so we haven't publicly announced it, but, but I did send you the link, Nick, in case uh, there's some interested beta uh, people that might want to check it out. Well, I guess it's going to be public now, you know. Uh, so you're okay with me posting the link, right? Yeah, it's good. It's Google just a sign up. There's, there's, uh, uh, you know, the the official announcement will will come out uh, later. I don't know if that's clickable or not. Maybe somebody. Yeah, in chat. I'm going to make it on the LinkedIn uh, profile so they can also click there. Uh, <clears throat> oh yeah, because it's a long link. <laughs> no one wants to type that stuff. Uh, all right, so. Um, question when it comes to your, your engagements with primes what has been uh kind of the response you've seen from the prime standpoint have you uh, were you able to to have any engagements on some projects with the, the larger uh, dod uh, vendors um yeah i think uh you know I, I would say that some of the large primes i think definitely get it um you know we've uh, specifically had some engagements with with boeing we also had some engagements with collins aerospace um, which is a Raytheon company, um, you know, to me, the the real question is, is do the primes value open source? And if the answer is yes, then Zarf really resonates with them. You know, one of the issues I see across the community is a lot of our customers um, obviously, you know, feel very passionate about who's contributing to the code base. And part of the concept of open source is, is really that they're community-driven products and the best community-driven products are international. And so how do you uh, sort of balance these two competing views of the world? And, and, you know, I don't know, you know, a small company like Defense Unicorns isn't going to be able to move the needle um, from an engagement, you know, internationally to sort of change that. And so in, in my view, the defense industrial base, you know, the, the five or six largest defense primes, I think are really going to have to step in. I think Defense Unicorns can play a huge talent role can play a huge, how do you get a couple products off the, off the ground? But how do you actually start a, start a discussion around really you know, NATO and other ally-driven products um, to where you can produce open source products that other people can consume, but from a supply chain security perspective, maybe you have uh, you know, something else potentially in there um, from a security perspective that you might not normally have on uh, another open source product, not because that you know, is the right call, but that's probably uh, sort of the gateway of how, you know, the federal government and DOD kind of gets behind open source. Yeah, and Michael was asking, of course, if you're open to uh, developers to contribute to Zoff, and I assume the answer yep. is yes. But uh... Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, you know, accept external contributions, of course. Um, and so, you know, there's a number of folks who have uh, already uh, contributed to the product that you can just go find. Um, you know, of course, our own team uh, is 
you know, predominantly a lot of the contributors, but would love to have other people, please, please, please. Um, you know, like I said, our, our desire is to contribute it to a foundation um, once we find one that works with our primary customers. Yeah. Of course, a lot of people are going to argue that, uh, well, you're making it easy for, for DoD to, uh, to, uh, to deal with their gap, but you're also helping China in the process by making it open source. So what are, what's your take on that? Uh, I don't. I don't actually think China has uh, a, this issue. You know, I think that that we have this issue, and so I, mm. you know, I want to focus on solving our issues. Um, I, I think you know any technology developed, um, you know, there's going to be a reluctance to use it from the other side, and so you know, you know, it's open, but you know, are do we do people actually believe that China is going to use this as their default tool? I don't know, but but I know if there was a Chinese equivalent that that we would be reluctant to use it. And so I would right. assume that, you know, just because it's available doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to rely upon it. And what about the uh, secu security aspect of uh, OPSEC and, and then being able to uh, look at it and pot potentially find, uh, you know, vulnerabilities and issues in it to, to be able to get into our systems? Yeah, I think, uh, think to that? me, the, you know, Zarf is such a small footprint that the more likely scenario or is things like Kubernetes, you know, or Linux kernel, or like there, there are so many other things to go attack that provides massive adoption across the entire ecosystem that, that to me, this is a, you know, very, very small surface area from attack vector perspective and not likely to be any, you know, not likely to be a target outside of, you know, uh, you know, almost curiosity because there's a target-rich environment of a bunch of other stuff that's also open source that has vulnerabilities discovered all the time that people are much more likely to to go find something. And you said there's a little bit of, um, you know, uh, kind of learning curve, right, to get to understand Zoff and the ecosystem. Are you providing um, training or what, what's the process for people to uh, to learn it? Yep. So, so we have two things. We have a Linux Foundation course, uh, which we're about to announce around AirGap software delivery. That it's virtual, um, and then the link. It's not that the I one, guess, and that's not the one for managers, right? That's a different, different kind. Yep. So we have uh, Intro to DevSecOps for Managers that myself and Brian released in partnership with the Linux Foundation. We also have AirGap software delivery one that's engineering focused. It's it's going through like what makes AirGap hard. And then talking through like you know solutions around how to make developers and IT admins lives easier, um, and you know that's going to release in the next couple of months. But then what we're also sort of offering is like a, you know a dedicated three week session to where you know we sit down with developers and walk them through this. And the whole goal of that is to actually get people to the point of continuous delivery for people who might be a little bit more on the, the junior side of, of the cloud native ecosystem. They, they might've been, you know, 20 years experience on, on Linux or 20 years experience doing VMs or, you know, a variety of other technologies, but the, you know, maybe not 20 years on VMs, but like 20 years of doing other things, but they might not know Kubernetes. They might not know some of these other things. Um, so how do you actually provide a solution that'll work for, for them in, you know, classified and air gap environments? And, and making it easy enough that they can pick it up. You know, from what we've seen is most people can pick it up in about a day, but we wanted to provide sort of a master's course and like, how do you actually make an expert in a couple of weeks? I even heard that you actually got proper lighting for this, for the second. <laughs> so that's yeah, no, I, I got, 
I got proper lighting just so I could come on the show because uh, so we can <laughs> so we can actually see you. You know, that, yeah. that's always good. Okay, good. So, and by the way, for people that have not checked the Linux Foundation uh, introduction to DevSecOps Manager, uh, you you do a pretty amazing job with Brian. Although at least we can see Brian, so that's always good. Uh, that you know, you explain pretty much every layer of the uh, the value uh, supply uh, value. Um, I'm blanking. VSM, you you uh, you're bringing every aspect of, and you're starting at the ba basic layer too, right? From cloud to, uh, I've seen that pretty much every pieces of the puzzle, right, uh, covered from the manager standpoint, which is which is pretty complementary to what we've been uh, uh, releasing on the London with Nick. Yeah, and it's super, free. Right? You give yeah, it for super, free because you're not greedy like me. <laughs> yeah, super super happy about getting it. Uh, released. Um, really, it was our way of uh, consolidating, you know, a thousand conversations into, you know, 20 hours or so of video that that when people ask, like, hey, how do we learn these things, we can just send them a link. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it's free. Um, Linux Foundation, you know, the links down there at the bottom. Otherwise, if you just Google DevSecOps, um, you know, for managers, um in linux then it'll it should pop up yeah we have well. it on the on the comments there already <clears throat> so people can click there there's a bitly oh, cool. also was off training too uh and then there's a linux foundation link there so thanks josh and and so um so when he came when he came oh, how long is that that training is it 20 hours is kind of the uh the volume of content you get there yeah it's about 15 to 20 hours um it's it's really just uh Brian and I talking with yeah. different guests through a couple of problems. It, it goes everything from historical perspective, which which we find very valuable. As you mentioned, there's value stream map. Um, there's uh, a tech like I tech like I'm ten, um, which which was sort of taken by by Tori on uh, a, a different uh, effort that she was sort of uh, leading, and it's really about just making making program managers who have now transitioned into technical program managers, assuming almost no background. And how do you actually better educate them? Because that's really what we see across the community is that, you know, somebody was an acquisitions uh, officer or civilian for a number of years, or they were in finance or they were on the operational side. And now all of a sudden they have to know what, you know, AWS is and they have to know about cloud technologies and containers and service mesh and all this other stuff. It was really about providing a baseline foundation for them to sort of get more confident and better educated on what they're doing because, you know, to go back to, you know, what we're focused on from a mission perspective, we want those individuals to be, um, you know, as educated as possible so they can make sound decisions for the nation. Yeah, no doubt. Although people complain about some of my created for our um, manager version of my training. So I hope they're going to spend the 20 hours. I, I know a lot of people don't want to invest in themselves. They, they would rather spend 20 hours, you know, on Netflix that's the kind of you know people we're creating nowadays but uh, hopefully they're going to be smarter than that and go watch your stuff so all right so we talked about products uh i guess we we kind of touched the subjects already right uh learning is hard uh takes time how do we enable it so how, what do you do at du when it comes to learning do you give time i know we used to give time to our people to learn in the air force space force in my teams to uh First, keep up, well, catch up, and then keep up. What do you do with your people? 
Yeah, so uh, at Defense Unicorns, we we do one of our values is focused learning. Um, what I will say though is that the people who take the most time to do focused learning in the company um, tend to be the ones that aren't producing the right outcomes. But the people who actually do an amazing job of learning well are the people who are actually applying their focused learning to like the things that they're actually doing for their day jobs. Like put a Another way, like going to YouTube and learning about something on YouTube is is maybe a good first step. But if you're not actually putting it in practice, you're probably actually not learning anything. You're just yeah, spending a lot of hours on stuff. And so I right. think, uh, you know, how do we enable learning? It's getting people more passionate about the you know mission outcomes and how the mission outcomes get so much better, the better that they are at their jobs. What that then does is inspire them to go learn more. Yeah. And in fact, you know, after you told me this, um, that's what made me uh, kind of go back to the Learn with Nick model. And uh, we're working on a partnership. I'm not going to disclose yet with whom, but a pretty big player to not only have uh, our curated content, but we're going to have unlimited access to their content. But they also allowed me to create it, right? Because again, uh, there's so many videos out there. If you look at the the Defense Acquisition University portfolio videos on DevSecOps. I think there's, uh, you know, 400 of them. So, uh, you know, people search DevSecOps and then, okay, you know, what are you going to watch? It's like going to a restaurant with too many options, right? I hate that. So we created it. So we all remove all the bias stuff, you know, focus on Google, Microsoft, secret sauce stuff. But then we also brought in that partnership the access to their cloud sandbox and uh you know hands-on exercises so everything they get to learn they have an actual real uh sandbox on the cloud with kubernetes and all this stuff so they can put it to practice but to have a real use case and we have some exercises that where you get to create you know kind of a mini you know software you know capability but it's obviously like you said it's, it's just better to bring it to your real life not everybody can do that because many times they're working on you know, other things that might not be already adopting that stuff. So, so we wanted to bring a sandbox and, a, and, and that's going to be all, by the way, included in, in the pricing um, of learning with Nick, which, which often, if you go buy alone is as expensive as, as what we, uh, we are providing. So it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah. I think the, the last thing I'll say on like enabling learning is it's really a time management thing. And um, one of the best ways to be more effective at time management is, try to only schedule 30 minute meetings wherever possible, like maybe block out the hour in case it goes over, especially if it's something yeah. important. But like, um, you know, one of the biggest issues I see is people trying to schedule hour long meetings. Um, and then because they have an hour, they take an hour um, versus just, you know, defaulting to asynchronous work or defaulting to as short of meeting as possible, or just having a, you know, implementing the two pizza rule um, where, wherever possible, even for virtual settings. You also use tools like Gather, right, to be able to have a virtual uh, world where people can go and meet. And I know you you did a, a book uh, reading session, I think, with the other. Um, yep. To uh, so I guess you're gonna have me for my next book to come and read. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. if you're doing a book, so maybe. Yeah. You know, well, uh, maybe said that's not nice. So, all right. So do you do you have that uh, kind of concept too, right? Of like that's uh, join um, kind of. A synchronous virtual world thing yeah it goes like the the question we always try to ask is why is quote in person better and and we we approach like everything that way 
And, and, you know, so like to give you like the remote equivalent of like, or like in office equivalent day to day, what makes in office work so valuable? Chance encounters, visually seeing somebody like those two are, are huge. And so, you know, when, when we formed the, the, the company, it was, you know, very, you know, relatively speaking, early COVID-ish days. And so like the majority of company didn't meet each other for, for months. When we finally met each other, everybody felt like they'd already knew each other because they had seen each other's faces um, over and over and over again for, for days and months. So that like, you know, joining an online meeting and having your cameras off, like, yeah, there's such a thing as Zoom fatigue. You know, there's such a thing as, you know, hey, just got out of bed and barely got the kids out. So, you know, not going to have my camera on today. But at a certain point, you need that human connection. And that's only formed, you know, I shouldn't say only formed, but it's most strongly formed visually. And so, like, cameras on whenever possible without making people feel uncomfortable, you know, followed by, like, chance encounters, which an actual, like, you know, RPG style, which if you haven't uh, seen Gather, it, it basically looks like a Super NES RPG game. But when you, your two characters walk up to each other, the videos turn on. And and like I said, the two things we're trying to to sort of simulate is, is chance encounters. How do you walk by somebody? Oh, hey, how are you? How's your day? Oh, I was having this idea. And then this thing happened. Uh, you know, how do you actually implement that virtually mixed with hey, have your cameras on because you're actually going to form more of a connection uh, when you actually see somebody versus you're just audio only. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, it's never going to be fully the same, right? Because, I mean, you know, first you have to go and walk and decide to start walking virtually, which is not the same as real life walking and you just have to use the restroom or good to get some food, you know, something to eat and you're coming back and, and suddenly you see somebody. So it's kind of, you still have to think about it, right? It's not going to happen. I, I, you know, I'll point to how many office situations that you'll have two people in the same office located 50 feet apart that never talk to each other, even though they're working on the exact same problem. And so, like, I'll push back and say it's better virtually because it's mm. a single office location. Everybody's jumping around. Everybody knows through, you know, either Slack or Mattermost or whatever tool we're using, plus the combination of a virtual asynchronous environment. So do you need to have both? You couldn't just use gather for chat. You have to have Slack yeah. and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we use uh, Mattermost for a lot of our mission customers because it's a, uh, you know, private uh, type infrastructure. Oh, um, and then we use Slack internally for our own stuff. And then we use gather for, you know, what I'll call like the equivalent of office hours. Like people aren't required to be on there, but, but, you know, they're encouraged to, and, you know, once again, to go back to why the DOD sucks at software, step number one, believe it can be better. You know, why does remotes suck? Step one, believe remote work can be better and ask yourselves, what are the things that make in-person office work better? Capture your list of five-ish things, you know, in some prioritized order, and then ask as, as a company, as a small team, as an organization, how do you virtually recreate those things? And then just experiment with new ideas until you get something that clicks, you know, I, you know, and then execute on it and, and, and measure what people think. You know, I think everybody's grown, grown up to enjoy the physical presence of other people. And, and to some extent that, that should, you know, is, is always obviously going to, to exist. And, you know, on our side, like we, we still enjoy uh, hanging out with people in person and it's extra special. But, but I don't feel as if we lack productivity 
um, that we don't develop the same outcomes because we're a virtual first organization. You you did not mention a lot, you know, anything around marketing and kind of the branding you've done with the unicorn and dog and, and all that kind of work you've done. How important has that been, you know, for the for the team building? Um, I think really important. Uh, branding uh, is has always been uh, special to to like me personally. Um, to me, if it, you know, if you're people people don't buy uh, spec sheets. Um, if you're worried about spec sheets, then then you're effectively a commodity, and and you're just evaluating price and and you know things like that. Um, to us, like what we wanted to make was was something that truly transformed, you know, the, not only the country but in our, our view the world. And in order to do that, we had to have a clear vision of what we wanted, and and we wanted to set the standard of like, you know, we're we're going to not only create change, but oh by the way, we're going to do it under our rules. We're going to do it in a fun way. Uh, the logo is obviously uh, <laughs> a unicorn. Uh, me and co-founders have uh, all have daughters. My, my daughter, Audrey, is obsessed with unicorns. My co-founder, Tom's daughter, also obsessed with unicorns. Like we wanted to create something that was, you know, attractive across uh, different persona types to draw in the talent, but then also convey to people that we're, we're here from the very beginning to do things differently. And you also um, helped us, right, uh, create the, the platform one logo yep. that was also pretty bold uh right for the u.s government um that's not something you see you know i, I would argue probably the best obviously we're biased but the, the best government logo there is uh so how did that how did that came to be uh well i think we were messaging over logo types and we had decided on the um the name platform one to actually be named alongside Cloud One, this was before right. all the ABMS family of ones came out, and so it was kind of like, uh, "Hey, this is how it's going to be." So we were, to be honest, kind of stuck with the name, um, right. and and we were exploring ideas. And I have like prototypes of the original, really, really, really boring ones uh, that 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 you know. Luckily, you vomited it all over and said that this is this is blowing, and we're going to throw away. And then we started exploring different ideas. Um, obviously, you know, uh, Mandalorian was was huge. Um, we were playing off a different bunch of different satires that we were going to sort of uh, go with, and it just kind of uh, we just honestly, I think, picked the thing that made us laugh the hardest. My only change I made to the logo was to add the Cubanese logo on the cup, <laughs> but that uh, one set. You came, you guys come up with uh, Smokey the Bear and, and Baby Yoda. I am the one that had to go fight the lawyers to get it approved, though. So, there's that. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I didn't know I would argue without me, I think, uh, I don't know if we would have the logo, but uh, <laughs> they, they were pretty uh, mad at me at first. So, all right. So, we talked about the stuff you've done at, at Defense Unicorn a little bit, but. Uh, you know, we talk about all, all these different issues, right? Uh, but but why all, all of this even matters to to the DoD mission? A lot of people maybe don't realize why why this matters. Yeah. Um, so to me, you know, personally, it goes right back to national defense. And and if you think about how the world is 
is continuing to grow as an international community. Um, this sort of like huge GDP gap between the United States and and everybody else is is obviously shrinking. And the reality is, is you know, in the near future, we most likely aren't going to have the largest GDP in the world. And so when it comes from like a purchasing power perspective, you know, our ability to just outbuy the competition is going to decrease and ultimately just go away altogether. And so if you look at the the national defense budget and how much we spend both from a national defense perspective, but also even from a internal government services uh, perspective. So like once again, Center for Medicaid, Medicare, what you see is these large drivers around software and IT systems. And, you know, I, I read a report earlier today that, you know, talked about things like, you know, the F-35 costing, you know, $8 million uh, per flight, um, even though it was protected to be 4 million and Lockheed Martin was able to, um, you know, make some updates and and get that down for this last year down to this quote four million per flight. That number is not realistic or sustainable um, for long term growth of, of of the country. And so, like to me, why it matters is we need to actually lower the barrier to entry for all of these potential defense companies that, in general can't work with the Department of Defense because of that massive barrier to entry and make it actually easy and seamlessly to, to have the capability to really deploy anything anywhere that would allow them to sort of better serve uh, you know, the, the government because who's gonna drive the future is really these dual use companies. Um, and so when you look at the, the majority of weapon systems, they're predominantly controlled by a you know, number of organizations. And, and I believe the, the incentive that we have put in place for them is to uh, get on a large contract to come up with a new weapon platform. And then over time, have the majority of funds basically built out in sustainment. And you know, if anybody listened to the podcast uh, that Defense Unicorns has with Dr. Roper, Dr. Will Roper, you know, he talked about how the government is actually incentivizing the same behavior that we're complaining about. And so to me, what's gonna happen is like either the percentage of our GDP spent on national defense is going to have to decrease or and or what that buys us relative to the international community will go down. And so how do we compete? How do we ensure that we don't ever enter a fair fight? Well, our, our, our dollar and the value of the dollar has to actually carry us farther. And to me, having lived that life, like it's all about it's way too difficult to do simple things. There are so many problems that a sailor could code up and release on a system and solve their own problem that we just don't enable people because we don't have the right infrastructure. And I put infrastructure in quotes because it's really the, the software delivery infrastructure. It's not, it, it needs to be easier. It needs to be more secure. And we need to be, better enable not only small businesses, but actually active duty personnel and civilians in order to actually just solve their problems and not wait for the budgeting cycles, not wait for the requirements process. All of these things have to actually be, be getting cheaper if we're actually going to have any chance of being successful in the future. Yeah, no doubt. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, all right. So let's dig into uh, platform one. You know, most people um, wouldn't probably want to cover this, but uh, you know, what did we do wrong? I mean, mostly you, you know, I'm, I'm too good to, to do anything wrong, but uh, what did we do wrong with platform one and, and what would you change? Yeah. Good Other question. Than the name. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think platform one did a really great job of sparking the conversation and, and, you know, increasing 
people's awareness of, of not only you know DevOps and DevSecOps, but but proving and validating that you know continuous delivery off of you know a, a system managed by uh, predominantly by the DoD was possible and, and federal government was really possible. Um, to me, where Platform One didn't do as as good, you know, uh, I think I think we um, because of budgeting stuff had to make a series of decisions to justify the funds coming in and didn't have the time we needed to build a better system before people started employing it. And, and that was because, you know, it, it was, you know, really self-formed organic team trying to produce value as quickly as possible. I think in the commercial world, you see this all the time, but what ends up happening in the commercial world is you get traction, you raise a VC round. Um, and oh, by the way, the majority of the, the founders and the ecosystem and the talent stays sticky and stays with the company as it grows. I think, you know, the HR process within the DOD is, is and still is broken, not only on the, the civilian and, and you know, uh, active duty side, but also on the contractor side in, in justifying it. So I think that was, you know, probably issue number one. And where it manifests itself was, was culture. Um, culture was such a huge thing and we put such a huge emphasis on it. But at the end of the day, as more and more, you know, programs started to adopt what Platform One was doing, more, more and more urgent needs were there. And what ended up being sacrificed was, was culture. And then the byproduct of sacrificing culture was, was a struggle to retain the right talent. And then what followed the struggle to retain the right talent was a struggle to keep doing the mini miracles that that used to be commonplace in an actual scalable fashion. So at the same time as an organization, uh, it's started to mature its processes. That's good. You know that that I, you know I think Colonel Viola has done a really great job, and you know Camden Katie and you know a lot of other folks over there have done a really great job of of uh, increasing the maturity of of the organization, which was which was really well needed. At the same time, I think you started to to lose a lot of really great talent without the actual ability to uh, backfill it. And so, if I would change anything, it would be, um, you know, setting more realistic expectations um, that you know you were the you know Elon Musk pushing people to go faster, do this, do the impossible every single time, um, which was good. That's what drove the organization to success. But the byproduct of it was, I think. Uh, manifested itself in in terms of a lack of being able to retain the talent that was originally there yeah i think there's there's a few other things i mean i guess you kind of mentioned a little bit but uh, the uncontrolled growth you know i think uh, you know we had a lot of people um not bringing enough value compared to the rest of the the initial team so we ended up really bloated and and uh, under delivering value, I think, compared to the number of people we had in the team. The other aspect is not being able to control HR. I was not able to uh, uh, keep or retain or, or just select the people I wanted to select to be able to run the, 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 the entire engagements and the different value streams and, and the different uh, priorities. And then we also um, kind of botched the launch of Podibus where, you know, the the consumption wasn't tracked and then you know you had um, a lot of people using it uh but not enough funding to to do that and and so you know a lot of people had to be kicked out or stop paying and it's just not a good you know 
Yeah, I, I uh, you know, I definitely struggle with that one. The other thing I'll say, and it's not to trigger you, Nick, um, you know, we we did a bad job of uh, alienating people who otherwise would be great allies. Um, and you yeah. know, like I said, not here to trigger you on your show because uh, I know you That's have okay. high, high high opinions. But I, uh, you know, when I think of us versus them, it's it's not you know the the us versus them is not not other organizations, sure. it's not other companies, it's us versus them and and right. and that to me um you know i think i think the the software ecosystem is so used to fighting over a limited amount of funding that it turns into food fights which is unhealthy for all the organizations it's unhealthy for the country what needs to happen is a shift in the investment posture and more investment you know federal wide on the things that these mini software ecosystems are trying to do in my opinion, that's what's going to stop the fighting is, you know, if everybody's fighting over the same dollar, it, it, it turns very personal um, versus if there's actually enough funding to fund both, then then it stops being these, you know, personality wars and start, starts being, you know, how do we actually effectively lead? And so, like I said, no, definitely don't want to trigger you. No, on your no, own show, Nick. <laughs> no but I, you know, I, I think honestly that this actually started usually from the company standpoints, more so than the government people. And I would argue uh, some of the government people definitely had, had biased, whether it was conscious or unconscious. You know, me coming from uh, the commercial side, I, I, I did not do any business with any of these companies. So I would argue I was the least biased of everybody in terms of like, you know, favorite VMware Red Hat. You know, when we started, everybody was saying I was completely in love with Red Hat and I was only pushing Red Hat technology, which was, you know, not true I, I actually had never worked with red hat before and no engagements with them before you know I, I i felt like they were listening and and you know participating more than others and then quite honestly the engagement was such a disaster that we uh, we ended the the engagement very rapidly and uh, moved uh, you know at, at that time to uh, to what you guys had built at the at uh, you know uh, space camp uh, but i i've seen you know the, the companies being more toxic because like you said they felt like, um, and 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 by the way, everybody went to Congress and to SECAF and everybody to uh, everybody, but the Queen of England pretty much was uh, receiving uh, phone calls about the fact that Platform One should not even exist and we should just use you know commercial products, uh, so we don't have to build a, a DevSecOps platform from scratch or whatever nonsense they were saying, and that we were competing. You know, the government was competing against commercial product when. Really, we were using commercial and open source products. We were just abstracting it and making it, you know, more agnostic. And of course, these companies did not want that. And you've seen it, you know, with massive vendor lock-in at uh, teams like Kesa Run and and uh, Kobayashi Maru, where we're still to this to this day, they're still struggling, even after wanted to to move off of of some of the technologies. To uh, they're still struggling at at doing that. Um, and and quite honestly, the the people also, and that's what we've done pretty differently also at Platform One in terms of like engagements with companies. You know, we did the, the basic ordering agreements with, um, you know, 100 plus companies. Many of the other uh, teams were completely uh, engaged with only one company. And I find it to be a, a very big mistake. Uh, and you've seen you know, the, tra the training the government people were receiving effectively was completely biased, right, to one company. Right. And, uh, 
you know, that, that's pretty scary, right? Because now you have uh, literally, I heard uh, government people all the way to G general officers, right? Uh, just use the, the, the marketing BS of some of these companies with no data to back it up, saying things like, hey, if I move to platform one, you know, I'm going to lose a day a week of productivity of developer time per developer because I don't have my fancy uh, Tenzu application service capability, right? Where there's zero data to back it up, right? And so I've heard and seen literally, um, you know, general officers with zero technology background whatsoever eat the Kool-Aid of, of some of these companies with, without, you know, really understanding the problem. Uh, to to and my reaction to some of these guys was like, oh, I need to call Elon Musk right now because uh, you know sp you know v uh, SpaceX is not using those guys, so they're losing a day a week of productivity. Just should they should be aware of this pretty quick, you know. So I, I get it, right? I think uh, it's it's pretty easy to say that uh, you know we're fighting against the same dollars. I, I would argue, you know, there was a lot of vacuum work when I came in, and a lot of teams doing things in a vacuum and. Uh, in their own bubbles, and you know, by doing platform one, we kind of force that uh, merger, right, and consolidation, and no one likes that, right? Uh, so obviously, it's going to create conflicts, um, but it's yeah, the right thing to do. We're lacking of talent, we're lacking of of people, right? It's it's it would be impossible to succeed if everybody do everybody does their own thing in vacuums. Um, so it was a tough balance, right? And I think I tried pretty hard to reach out to everybody, uh, particularly coming in. I had no personal preference, right? Um, you know, when I went to space camp and so you guys, you know, um, I mean, I don't think I had any personal, you know, preference to work with you guys versus, you know, Kessa Run or somebody else, right? I I didn't know any of, of you guys. Yeah, we didn't know um, you. So. Right. And so it, it's not like... Uh, I think I, you know, I, I was pretty unbiased to pick the best uh, team to get the job done. And, and quite honestly, you were kind of the least funded and the least staffed, but yet you had the, the most, uh, you know, uh, capabilities built and tangible outcomes in, in real life, you know, built compared to a lot of marketing slides, you know, BS of some of the larger teams. Right. And so I think it's, it's tough, right? Because you show up, Right. And, and you, you're coming after a lot of this stuff. You know, I, I'm coming after a lot of this stuff started. Right. And, and by definition, you know, when you, you're, you're tasked to consolidate and, and, you know, kind of prioritize. And, and by the way, by, back then, the, the fight was not, that was also on the, you know, uh, Cloud Foundry versus Kubernetes, which, you know, if I didn't push so hard, uh, quite honestly, the department would be entirely locked into Cloud Foundry. Cloud Foundry and Kessel Run was becoming, the uh, preferred option. And now we would have dozens of teams having to migrate uh, to Kubernetes because Cloud Foundry is literally dead. Um, and so we, we kind of saved probably a lot of money to the taxpayer, a lot of headaches too. And, and the fight we had, you know, between the companies kind of, you know, spread among the government people. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think all, all I can say about it is, uh, you know, uh, all of us are better than some of us. And so like, uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, and I, and I think, I think there's been good progress, 
you know, I know the teams worked really well together very early on. Like VMware was the first company to actually uh, do their infrastructure as code deployment with Tanzu on Repo One. You know, Red Hat was the the initial teams that we were working with. You know, you know, like I said, I, I see the I see the world as a you know us versus them, and you know yeah. all those companies, the cloud companies. You know, I don't uh, the the intent, the vision of what you know Platform One was trying to do was was be a participant within the ecosystem, and and I think. You know uh, what ended up happening to some percentage of people was uh, enough conflict that it turned into something other than that. And and I would say in terms of regrets uh, from an organizational perspective, I think that that that's probably number one on, on my side because, like I said, I, I you know I don't see how uh, the DoD can be successful without finding amazing ways to work with uh, you know SUSE and VMware and and Red Hat and AWS and Azure. And there's going to be certain things that look as if it's competing, but the reality is, is it, it shouldn't be, and it shouldn't be viewed it that way. You know, the default answer should be like, how do we enable this? You know, when is a vendor lock-in okay? Like for example, is right. a vendor lock-in that big of a deal for an HR app that might have a five to six year lifetime? I don't think so. I think where a, a vendor lock-in becomes more serious is when you're dealing with the you know intended 50-year-old weapon system that right. hasn't even been produced yet. Um, and so, like you know, to me, it's a uh, um, you know, I think I think we uh, a bunch of innovators were fighting over one percent of the budget or 0.001 percent of no, the budget. Much less than one percent. <laughs> and 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 it's a wrong of, uh, of the budget. Yeah, exactly. And and but because that was all that was appropriated. And so because Congress isn't appropriating enough funds, uh, people who otherwise would get along great and collaborate are fighting over the same dollar. And what ends up uh, occurring from that is a reduction in collaboration, uh, you know, reduction in mission capabilities. Uh, to me, the, the action is actually from a congressional standpoint. And it's nice being out, at, out now because, you know, when you're active duty, you can't go you know, petition to Congress and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? You need to fund this stuff more. Uh, but when you're on the outside, you can, you know, actually go and, you know, ask for those things and uh, make a good point as to why software factories, why the software ecosystem actually just needs more investment because it shouldn't be, you know, team A is funded, but team B isn't because that's going to create, you know, basically a, a talent gap. And what's going to happen is the team that doesn't get funded is going to lose all that talent and everyone's just going to go around, away. And even if they were wrong, odds are they would have figured out they were wrong you know, six or nine months later, maybe just a little slower and then change course in either direction. And so, you know, I, you know, I feel like uh, great things were made at Platform One. I'm glad to see that the ecosystem, in my opinion, is collaborating more, um, more recently. Although I, I do feel like uh, the momentum is dying. Uh, I, I feel like there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people leaving and the, the good ones particularly are leaving. And, uh, uh, both, you know, the fact that Kessa Run is now not a, uh, a debt, you know, uh, and, and they are being moved, uh, you know, a little bit to a, to a lesser or less important um, kind of model. Um, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's, it's a lot of signs that uh, no one cares. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. Um, you know, I... Uh, what because I have my my podcast, I, I bring on a bunch of innovators, and I'm always amazed at what uh, you know active duty and civilians are able to accomplish. And I I feel as if um, there's more today 
than, you know, two or three years ago um, when I was still serving. And so, you know, maybe that's just awareness. Maybe people are more vocal now. Um, but I, I also know you and would reach out to you like to me too. But um, I don't know if the leadership and the push from the top. Um, and I don't, I don't know how you can scale this stuff to a meaningful level that's not just a running error of life, you know, if, if the top is easier. not there. It needs yeah. to be easier. The reality is, is right. like, it, it, you know, talking to a company, quote, go platform one or talking to a program office, quote, go platform one is like a nightmare. And, and it's not clear what the heck that means. Does that mean go to this thing called party bus? Does that mean integrate with Big Bang? Do I have to, how do I deploy this? So by the way, I want this extra tool that's not on Big Bang. Does that mean I can't use it? Um, you know, it is way too freaking hard to do anything. And because it's so hard, people are reluctant to adopt it because it doesn't seem any easier than, than just doing it themselves. Um, the reality is, is that what, what matters is actually a declarative configuration as code platform. Whatever platform that is, you know, leave that and just say it's irrelevant. But what actually matters is an actual declarative configuration as code platform that's that's accredited that could be easy to deliver. And and you know, up in my opinion, like you know, platform one and the entire software factory ecosystem is still way the heck too hard. And because it's way the heck too hard, people are reluctant to scale it. Um, an investment in people and investment in product to lower that barrier to entry, to make it so easy anybody can freaking do it. The second it's so easy, it's hard not to do it. You look like an idiot because you're not doing it. The second that's true, and it's less about like a mandate or less I was told to go platform one and more like, oh, I'd be an idiot not to. Um, the second that happens, the second it, it sort of does that flip, then then to me, you know, or, organic adoption is gonna be what drives it, What's what's, organic adoption is occurring, but it's still in the early adopter phase. And so, I, you know, we see organic adoption all the time with a bunch of people in the Navy, you know, a bunch of people across the federal government. You have folks that are interested in it at places like FDIC. You have commercial. You have like a bunch of people very, very interested in the same type of stuff. Um, but it's still in that early adopter phase to where it's people who are self-identifying that they're a problem. They're trying to find solutions. They're struggling through their own stuff. Um, what it needs is to actually jump into the early majority and late majority adopters, which is really like, I have something, it already kind of works. You know, I don't know that this is a good fit for me, but oh, by the way, this other alternative is so freaking easy and it's so much better and it has such a great experience that I would be stupid not to adopt it. And everybody on my team agrees it hasn't got that easy yet. Yeah, but the top down is not just uh, you know pushing a mandate. It's also like you know pushing funding and staffing and making it uh, a priority. I, I don't even know really who is paying attention to what platform one leadership is doing or not. If I was not myself, sometimes sending emails to SecAF, I can tell you that uh, uh, some of the nonsense I see would still happen because nobody cares. They have not replaced me. They still know CSO, right? The the new AQ team being split with the Air, uh, the Space Force acquisition uh, of zero care about platform one whatsoever that used to be briefed to dr roper on a weekly basis right uh so even like forget about the mandate from the top but even like the the importance of it or, or how much people care about it in terms of the leadership standpoint i think that that's completely gone and that scares me right because now you can just do what what a traditional program would do which is a bunch of nothing you know and, and no outcomes. And then you will never solve the problem to get to where you want to be, what you were just describing now. 
Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it seems like Platform One is starting to get congressional funds. And I think that is the organization. Yeah, and by the way, I, I did funds. that before leaving. So yeah, it and, was, but it takes time. And so like, I know, you but, know, you know, that since then nothing happened. Right. So what big, I mean, we were pushing the needle, right. Also of new things and, and, and kind of better outcomes. I would argue, you know, some of the biggest delivery we've seen uh, on the platform one side is now iron bank is not even accrediting containers anymore. It's just not even authorized. It's, it's just like a, a label, which is completely opposed to, what we had in mind of, of doing so so it's, it's going the wrong direction it's not going the right you know no one is held accountable um that scares me a lot I, I the the value not not having you know certified bits was that that iron bank model was the most important delivery to enable adoption of open source and commercial tools to the department they were so close to getting it completely recognized by DODCIO's team and making it the DoD repo and now going backwards and, and stop accrediting containers is just the opposite of what we needed. Uh, and, and no one is, is paying attention to any of this stuff, right? So yeah, they get like, away with, uh, with the same I, amount of money. Accreditation without configuration is, is difficult. Um, and so like, to me, that value stream across Iron Bank to Big Bang to production course i'm i'm biased here and think zarf plays a role in the delivery side but that to me is a you know becoming better every single day um to me what what platform one is showing is that the ability to just approve any random container um has process issues specifically the issues that people see when they consume iron bank containers is a lot of times there'll be a vulnerability in something and somebody will just remove the vulnerability and then just resubmit it not knowing that the, what they actually removed is going to actually break the container from how it's intended to be ran in production. And so like, I have not seen outside of a, a couple small use cases, mass adoption of iron bank containers that weren't already configured by other teams um, because it's too, it's, it's hard. And, and, and it, it requires the combination of secure hardened containers plus configuration as code. And the combinations of those two, those two really provide you know, your leg up in the accreditation process, but, but so few teams have the technical talent to take a quote container that might be hardened and stitch it together into the other 15 things that it's supposed to be stitched together to, and then actually hit that in production. And oh, by the way, because the Iron Bank team doesn't actually know how people are stitching it together, there's no feedback loop with the development team. And so they're either in some cases breaking things without even knowing it, or, or two, they're not hardening things as much as they they could be because they actually don't know what a team is actually using, you know, how they're actually using the product or not. And and so like the the thing that I I think is, um, you know, what I hope any innovation team or you know, platform one or any of these software factories is just like remember to own it and then like remember to just change stuff where it makes sense. So so I so I know you disagree with the uh, the, the approval process. But the, but the thing I, I really liked is that they're they're trying new things. And I think too many times with any organization, they just, over the course of years, become stuck to like, oh, we do this, we do blank, and oh, we do blank. I think experimenting with new models is exactly what 
you know, we, is exactly what you would have done. You would have insisted, you would have heard everyone complaining and you would have said, fine, let's do it for three months. And then I'll prove to you guys that I'm right, but let's do it for three months. And I, I like that they're at least, uh, you know, trying to do those things. Well, but it depends for the reasons as to why they're doing it. I would argue they're doing it because it's easier and it's, uh, they're not fighting the fight and they just gave up. It wasn't because it was the right thing to do. Uh, so I don't agree, you know, because it's 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 just cutting corners. Uh, and I can tell you the configurations. The better answer would have been, okay, um, you know, first, a lot of the products are commercial products. They're, they're supposed to be bringing the configuration setting just like a stig would have to be done, uh, right? There's no reason to do uh, 50 stigs of uh, MySQL and Postgres and all these things. You could definitely provide the configuration as code day one, right? So there, there were a lot of products that could have been done from day one. And that's what's kind of the initial vision of, of Iron Bank. It was never supposed to stop just at the container level, but the configuration, of course, should have been uh, part of that um, you know, process. And just like a stake would, would do that. Um, of course, when you start doing massive volumes, and, and honestly, it was supposed to be 189 containers and turn into 1,000, that's pretty impossible to keep up. It would have been a better argument to say, you know what, we're going to reduce the number, but we're going to do the configuration Right, and we're gonna keep going all the way to accreditation. That I would actually support. Right, you're saying, well, okay, we don't have the bandwidth to do a thousand containers, but we're gonna do the configuration of all these open source and and databases and things. But we're gonna yeah. give you a, a certificate to fill with the configuration. That's a better. That's what I would have pushed back. But but my my whole point is there is no one pushing back, right? Because let's face it, if I wasn't there wasn't there during the whole time, there would be a lot of different things. That could have gone wrong because there was no one pushing back on some of the concepts, particularly when it wasn't the right thing to do because it was driven by money saving or by um, bureaucracy taking back or you know taking over the progress we we made. Right now that uh, you know it's a program of record, it has funding. We, we we I just feel like it's it's starting to look and feel and and taste and smell like a program of record, and that's pretty scary, right? You you're back to what you didn't want to. De- the, the same thing that we used to complain about is now how we do business, right? And that's just terrible, right? Yeah, it's uh, part of scaling an org in, in the DoD. Yes, it's, uh, that, it's that's the issue, right? It, it's just like this never ending, you know, the, the thing that's supposed to be fixing is just like, you know, when people complain about, hey, we have 20 standards, you know, we're going to try to merge. And, and the answer to merge 20 standards, right, is to create a 21st, uh, the, the, the next one. And, and, and that never solved the problem, right? And, and so we're kind of doing the same thing here, right? We, okay, all these program of records are not able to, to bring that agility. So we're going to create a team to do it, which makes sense to consolidate and bring out as a service. And then there's, there's the adoption issue. There's a training issue. There's a scaling issue, right? It's kind of this vicious cycle. And, oh, it's not funded, right? So we're going to fund them through, through Congress, make it a program of record. But now you're back. Okay, you have five-year cycle. You need to plan funding. And, uh, you know, and the priorities got lost. You know, for me, Iron Bank, look, I, I would rather shut down Party Bus before I touch Iron Bank in any way, shape or form, you know. Yep. Uh, yeah, you, you didn't you even know. want you didn't even want it. But but that's the, the key. I let, but I, you see, I let you do it because, <laughs> like you said, it wasn't the, the, the outcome was pretty tangible and it wasn't because of uh, complacency or like the wrong, it wasn't pushing the wrong behavior, right? That's the difference with the Iron Bank change, right? 
I would never have let, let that happen because it's just pushing the wrong behavior rather than saying, okay, we're going to do less containers, but keep doing the certification because we, we sold it as a, as a reciprocity capability, right? The minute you just give a, a rank or a number or a grade, which completely biased based on very arbitrary conditions that no one would even agree with, by the way, right? They came up with rules if you have two highs or what, that's complete nonsense, right? No one would even agree on the basis of the grade. So now not only the grade is useless and based on biased, you know, metrics, but now you don't get a certificate to field and you don't get any benefit of using it, right? So they killed it, right? They actually killed the concept of it, right? And no one was there to push back, right? All because some people say, well, there was no configurations. Well, sure, you know, many had it though, right? And, and oh, by the way, many databases had it and things, right? So, but no, they don't have an, a, a, a CTF, even for those that had it, right? So why? What's the excuse there? Like why, like you, you, the universal base image is tagged and passing all the OS requirements yet, yet it's not, you know, it's not authorized. It's now graded. What? Why? Why did we lose that that massive enabler as a base image for all these companies using it? Right. Streamlining the adoption of of a staked image. That alone, by the way, is you just do one image, right? Imagine for all these commercial products, all these commercial companies can now use this to have a staked base OS. That was a game changing capability, and now that's out of the window. Uh, and again, I, I don't think it was because people were trying to solve the configuration as code, you know, push back. It was, hey, we don't have the money, so we're going to cut corners and we're going to just do the the least amount of work. So we're just going to grade things automatically, by the way, where, where by the way, all this started because when I left, I was the one approving containers. And now you have four people approving and they can keep up with my pace that I had alone, you know, despite having a full-time job, right? So, so again, you know, they, they, they just, that's a wrong that's the wrong outcomes. And that's just, you know, that just, it's just a lot of red flags, you know, and I'm certainly not saying the bottom up is still not motivated to get things done. I just don't know how you get to meaningful, like you said, it's, it's rounding error of the funding of the department. And, and honestly, until we get to 50%, right, of the program funding, I don't think we really get where we want to be to compete with China, right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, <laughs> Arguing with you is is uh, like a pastime, so uh, I, I'm sure uh, <laughs> publicly we look like we agree a lot. But I'll, you know, most of my time. <laughs> no, but that's what's fun, school. right? I mean, that's how we get. <laughs> that's why you get so much stuff done. And, and quite honestly, I think you're the one that managed to convince me to change my mind on a lot of things along the three years. Um, that was I am still am very opinionated, but you. <laughs> I, you know, one thing I do though is I do listen when when the argument makes sense, right? And you you'll you convince me multiple times to do things that I didn't want to do, right? And we've done it, and uh, usually it came up pretty good. Uh, doesn't mean you know we just have to agree and let things happen when we know it's wrong, right? Uh, and so you know it's just I, I'm just worried about the momentum um, from the top down. And the fact, quite honestly, that, and I don't care about my role, the fact that they have not yet replaced me is, is concerning within itself, but but it's also the number of people leaving, raising the same kind of uh, alarm signals that I was raising 
you know, between Preston Dunlap and Jason Weiss. And, you know, none of these people left because they were happy to, uh, they, they wanted to go elsewhere. They wanted to stay. I wanted to stay. I had no intention of leaving. Right. That's pretty scary when you lose people that want to stay. You know what I mean? So like from, from a optimization sustainment perspective, you know, hardened once distributed everywhere makes sense. But from a cybersecurity perspective, you know, building in your own environment, providing a decentralized surface, which maybe provides more opportunities, but at the same time reduces risk across, you know, the entire department. Uh, to me, you know, what is the future like? To me, Iron Bank, ridiculous success, validated the, the goal, the intent. It's being used by people across the entire world. Um, it's amazing. To, to me, the steps forward is making it so easy Anybody can implement it in their own environment. You know, people looking at concepts like distrolists, people looking at, uh, you know, specific hardened images to decrease the, you know, attack vector surface area, you know, optimize to how they're actually deploying the capability. And, and, and to me, that's the, the issue right now is that it's too difficult. And because it's too difficult, you have to look at the sustainment costs. And because it's too difficult, the sustainment costs are way more beneficial doing it in a centralized way. But to me, the future is a decentralized approach that's so easy any software organization can do it. Then when any software organization can do it, they can actually optimize how they're actually hardening images and how they're actually deploying. Right now, it's just too hard. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> no, no. No, I mean, look, I think there is also the debate between, you know, Secret Service will tell you that the White House why there is one house to protect the president is because it's easier to protect one house. I think uh, if you look at uh, the attack surface of the build systems and DevSecOps teams being, being targeted now, the Chrome Jewel, um, you're going to find just like Linux builds stuff in one location. You don't see everybody rebuilding bits and distributing bits and signing them and, and uh, you know doing the integrity check and the provenance checks of the bits. It's kind of the same reason as to... Uh, why we start centralizing this stuff. I think there's going to be a massive set of attack surface. And quite honestly, um, people vastly underestimate what it takes to build stuff uh, securely. You know, people just build stuff in vacuums with no integrity checks as bombs and signature. And, and you know, they don't treat the the build server as as, uh, as cattle. And it, it just becomes just like solar winds, right? The next attack vector. I think... I think this is going to become like build servers and CI/CD pipelines are going to become like the, you know, the hardest thing to secure uh, along the way, and it's it's going to become way too difficult for each team to do that, um, and 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 multi-tenancy is gonna is gonna be even harder. But uh, and and the harder yeah. it is, you know, a lot of the you know I was talking to Active Duty Sailor the other day who's struggling off you know things that are basically written for like Windows ninety eight. Um, you know, Windows 98 is not secure. And so the, 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 the biggest, in my opinion, the biggest issue here is that the community has made it so difficult that in, for the, because we're trying to secure things, we've created a barrier to entry uh, through RMF and different mechanisms that's actually made us less secure. And, and to me, the right. first step is make it easier while being as secure as possible and then make your security process a journey you know, rather than an end state to where, you know, ATOs are treated as end states, you know, cybersecurity isn't treated as as a journey. People think, you know, risk management when they should be thinking active cyber defense. 
Like to me, that right. that mentality shift needs to change. You need to assume that your systems are compromised and you need to set up the system in a way that you can actually actively respond to an active attack. That's very, very different than how we currently treat systems, which is, you know, checklists, risk management. Let me produce a system that mitigates the risks. And oh, by the way, because I've thrown so much paperwork into the process, I've actually induced way more risk than I was trying to avoid by delivering new software. Yeah, I always tell people that I'm I'm always worried about DoD getting getting hacked, but I'm even more worried that the DoD is going to become so irrelevant that that no one is going to try to hack us. So that's a fruitful <laughs> thought there. Um, you know. So last question before we go to the public, and then we'll let you go because we're already out of time. But uh, what are your thoughts on the fix uh, our computer uh, issue that we've been seeing recently in the news? Uh, I mean, love it, love the intent. Uh, you know, everybody wants to talk about AI and hypersonics. And the reality is that the number one issue facing everyone is that it takes them 30 to 45 minutes for their computers to start. It, it takes them minutes to send emails. They, they struggle through loss of time, which, which in turn means to them either working extra hours and losing time with their families, which in turn leads to poor retention rates. And so like, when I look across the issue to me, it's like, you know, uh, everybody wants to do the, the cool thing. Everybody wants to do, you know, the really, really awesome new weapon system that everybody talks about as a key differentiator. Uh, but at the end of the day, what do people actually need? And people actually need a computer that can actually boot up fast, that can send emails, e emails seamlessly. Like the, the it, it sucks for everybody who has to go home and have technology at their fingertips. And then they log on to a DOD network or system and everything just freaking sucks especially with how much money everybody spends on this stuff. Yeah, no doubt. All right, so we have so many questions. We're going to try to keep it short to let you go at three. But uh, all right, so here we go. We're going to start with this one. What is the biggest bottleneck for attempting to achieve an ATO in the scope of a DevSecOps pipeline in duty? For example, the product uh, Blue and Game Warden, are you seeing any modernized uh, GLC mechanism that can help uh, these factories move away from the antiquated uh, IMF process and EMAS? Yeah, I think uh, GRC tools, like, for sure. I think that the number one thing that I think is most exciting is OSCAL and the work that people are doing to effectively uh, come up with a process and tie the actual like NIST and RMF control responses to the actual configuration of the system. So that way, when when people, you know, we, we talked about, hey, what's the issue with reciprocity? The issue with reciprocity is that uh, guidance at the service or agency level is, is not standardized or even at the program level. And so what steps somebody went through for one AO within one service or agency is actually fundamentally in some cases different than another service or agency. And so when you talk about reciprocity, you know, people start struggling because they like, hey, they'll ask a simple question, hey, where's your blank? And, and if, you know, somebody went through a different process, different route, it's formatted different, it appears different, then it becomes very, very hard to actually accept reciprocity across services and agencies. To me, OSCAL and getting back to, you know, controlled responses from a government or NIST perspective, and then carrying those controlled responses over to any deployments within, you know, a, you know, commonly used platform going to back to that configuration as code. So in platform one's case, you know, that's big bang. It's like, how do you actually tie your OSCAL sort of OSCAL plus Big Bang equals actual rapid ATO, regardless of who you're dealing with. Because the way the Air Force uh, 
treats their ATO systems with, with people like Danny and Lauren is, is, is different than how CMS is going to treat it. It's different how, than how the Navy is going to treat it. It's different than how the White House would treat it. Yeah. All right, next question. Uh, the key component in DevSecOps is, is security. What are your recommendations to, six, to successfully bake in security as part of uh, software delivery in a culture that continuously sees security as an impediment and an afterthought? Um, to me, it goes back to the difference between risk mitigation and active cyber defense. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll quote uh, Danny Holtzman on, you know, recent ATO I was working through with him. You know, he asked, you know, the team, you know, what, you know, show me where you've been attacked. Show me where somebody has tried to break into the system. And, and if you don't have a good response, you don't know, then you're obviously not looking. And, and that mentality shift of active cyber defense versus control responses, RMF, risk management, is to me the biggest culture shift, is it's no longer ATO, the system is authorized, quote, it's secure as an end state, and more, the system is, a, is assumed compromised, you're assumed under constant attack, and it's about how you actually providing that continuous monitoring, and can you actually give relevant examples of people trying to attack your systems? And if you, you ask your teams, like, when was the last time we were attacked? And if they say, oh, we don't, we don't know when we were last attacked, you're doing it wrong. You have no concept of actual active cyber defense. You should have an answer to that question. And if, and if you don't actually have a good answer, then you're, you're honestly not trying. You're not thinking about it as a defense system. You're thinking about it as a you know, control mechanism, an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Nick was asking, what's the best way for small businesses to make connections within software factories? Great question. Um, you know, throughout both when I was in the government and, and even out, I, I've used the the you know AFWERKS, uh, you know SBIR and STTR proposal. Um, reached out on LinkedIn, uh, you know, to different key people. You know, talk about what you're trying to accomplish. Um, listen first is probably the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I can say if you're you're trying to get your your foot in the door. Um, you know, it's to you know you you have probably successfully solved a similar problem for somebody else but you've also probably solved 10 problems. Um, what of those 10 problems is most relevant to the, the customer you're trying to work with? And so I think, uh, you know, front door for small, small business, AFWERKS, SBIR and STTR, um, you know, definitely seen that time and time again, even though it's becoming more and more competitive and then just reaching out to different software organizations. A lot of times, the, a lot of times people are busy, um, but just say persistent. Um, and, you know, I, I think eventually you'll get a hold of somebody. And then, like I said, lead with, don't lead with the pitch, uh, lead with discovery. All right. Could you talk about the issue of handing out free chicken, such as the matter most, uh, and getting enterprise funding to sustain it once everyone is using it day to day? Um, this to me, like, I'll be honest, uh, I have a totally different perspective on this than I think anybody else. Um, I, I think... Uh, there's enough demand for it that if you just charge some of the programs, you could have it for free. Yeah, everybody loves enterprise funding. Who doesn't? Because then you don't have to do that. But as as you know, one of the individuals that had to fund it to start, um, the demand is there, and programs rely upon it. And you know, give you a good example. You know, Project Blue. You know, uh, it's a, a Navy Dream Factory, not not to be confused with the software factory. But but Project Blue uses Mattermost daily. And, and without it, you know, what, what we're doing is pushing an ecosystem back to tools that they shouldn't be using. Before Mattermost, we had people at deployed locations 
using things like Facebook Messenger um, for, for different activities that they should not be using those chat tools with. But they were using those tools because they didn't have an approved solution. And when push comes to shove, the mission will will be accomplished. You know, we will be successful. And it's really about, you know, if you go back to risk management, what's riskier? You know, using Mattermost or using Facebook? Well, you should probably be using Mattermost, I would say. I think everybody would say that. And if people are struggling with the the value of this, like recognize how big of a deal Mattermost was uh, from the Afghanistan evacuation. Like you had multiple people really, really jumping on and collaborating. And there wasn't a tool like Mattermost that was basically approved and in use federal wide. And people are over here arguing about enterprise funding or not. It's like, if you're running out of funding, just tell the programs it costs a little more. And, and you spend so much time nickeling and diming people who are actually using it that what you end up doing is an opportunity cost that shows up in you know, driving your outcomes. So like to me, stop counting. If you have to increase the price, in, increase the price. Let the programs know that it's it's there. It's not going away. If anything, you might reduce the the account number a little bit. You know, I was happy to hear that Mattermost got over the impact level differences, and it's you know one single license for sort of all people. But even that fight, if you think about it, the majority of users were on aisle four. There's probably only five to ten percent of users that were actually on aisle two. So it wasn't even that big of a delta. Like to me, it's like it provides mission value. Fund it. If you have to go ask more people for the money, my guess is people would always be willing to pay for it because it actually does provide value. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wonder what happened with Metamost. I don't know. You tell me. I have no clue. We managed to convince them to change the impact level stuff. Yeah, we're out of time. But uh, first, of course, I wanted to to thank you as always for taking the time to uh, to stay with us for two hours and give your insights. That was, I think, very interesting for everybody. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to give you the last words, but before that, I wanted to remind everybody that uh, there won't be a show next week. We're going to see each other in two weeks with Joe Saunders, the CEO of Run Safe. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting episode. Joe is a great guy, very small, you know, uh, founder of, of the company, but also he's done multiple businesses before, and he's um, one of the best cyber experts I know. Uh, very nice guy as well. So uh, stay tuned in two weeks, uh, 1 p.m. Uh, Tuesday. Uh, for the next episode and um, I want to give you the the last words for the group here to uh, to uh, share your last uh, final thoughts yeah so two things first just uh, thanks Nick I we uh, disagree on probably every topic that we've ever came across um, and, and you can That's you know uh, definitely be polarizing and a jerk uh, at times but, but I know your heart's in the right place and you do drive the discussions forward uh, and so I appreciate you, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you could do with your life at this point. You can, you know, start other bunch of different companies and you could do a lot of different stuff. But but I do appreciate that you've uh, stayed involved with this community, even though uh, you're no longer in the federal government. So thanks not only for having me, but for continuing to be sort of mission focused. Although in some ways I suspect it's not a choice. I think the... The mission has you, you know, it has a monopoly uh, on value. And so, you know, I'm sure if you uh, if you could walk away, you would. But but I appreciate that you care enough to stay. Um, second thing is just, you know, to thank you to everybody who continues to be a part of this community. Um, you know, I, I see things like Zarf, things like Big Bang and all the things that the, the broader community is trying to do in open source is sort of the, the future. Um, and so feel free to reach out on, on LinkedIn to me. Happy to answer any questions. If you have an AirGap software delivery problem, um, it's kind of a niche focus of ours and we do anything to, to help people. 
we are active on GitHub. And so you can just respond to issues. We tend to have a 24 hour response time. And then if people are actually struggling with mission workloads, you know, we do have enterprise services as well. So. Well, Rob, wanted to thank you. In fact, you had warned me about the mission stuff. I told you, no, no way. When I leave, I'm going to go back to commercial stuff. And I, <laughs> I made fun of you. I remember that discussion. And, and no, I'm, I guess you were right. But I also had no kids. No, I have three kids. And I, I think we don't have a choice. Uh, yeah. In fact, I wanted to thank everybody again for uh, fighting the fight and making sure that uh, our kids have a fighting chance at winning against China 20 years from now. Stay safe. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye, guys.